0: Book One, Chapter Ten of Our Mutual Friend.
1: This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book One, The Cup and the Lip, Chapter Ten, A Marriage Contract. There is excitement in the veneering mansion. The mature young lady is going to be married, powder and all, to the mature young gentleman and she is to be married from the veneering-house, and the veneerings are to give the breakfast. The analytical, who objects as a matter of principle to everything that occurs on the premises, necessarily objects to the match, but his consent has been dispensed with, and a spring-van is delivering its load of greenhouse plants at the door, in order that to-morrow's feast may be crowned with flowers. The mature young lady is a lady of property, the mature young gentleman is a gentleman of property, He invests his property. He goes, in a condescending, amateurish way, into the city, attends meetings of directors, and has to do with traffic in shares. As is well known to the wise in their generation, traffic in shares is the one thing to have to do with in this world. Have no antecedents, no established character, no cultivation, no ideas, no manners, have shares. Have shares enough to be on boards of direction, in capital letters oscillate on mysterious business between London and Paris, and be great. Where does he come from? Shares. Where is he going to? Shares. What are his tastes? Shares. Has he any principles? Shares. What squeezes him into Parliament? Shares. Perhaps he never of himself achieved success in anything, never originated anything, never produced anything? Sufficient answer to all? Shares. O oh, mighty shares! To set those blaring images so high, and to cause us smaller vermin, as under the influence of henbane or opium, to cry out, night and day, relieve us of our money, scatter it for us, buy us and sell us, ruin us, only we beseech ye take rank among the powers of the earth, and fatten on us. While the loves and graces have been preparing this torch for Hymen, which is to be kindled to-morrow. "'Mr. Twemlow has suffered much in his mind. "'It would seem that both the mature young lady "'and the mature young gentleman "'must indubitably be Veneering's oldest friends. "'Wards of his, perhaps. "'Yet that can scarcely be, for they are older than himself. "'Veneering has been in their confidence throughout, "'and has done much to lure them to the altar. "'He has mentioned to Twemlow how he said to Mrs. Veneering, "'Anastasia, this must be a match.' He has mentioned to Twemlow how he regards Sophronia Akersham, the mature young lady, in the light of a sister, and Alfred Lammle, the mature young gentleman, in the light of a brother. Twemlow has asked him whether he went to school as a junior with Alfred. He has answered, not exactly. Whether Sophronia was adopted by his mother? He has answered, not precisely so. Twemlow's hand has gone to his forehead, with a lost air. But, two or three weeks ago, Twemlow, sitting over his newspaper, and over his dry toast, and weak tea, and over the stable-yard in Duke Street, St. James's, received a highly perfumed cocked hat and monogram from Mrs. Veneering, entreating her dearest Mr. T., if not particularly engaged that day, to come like a charming soul, and make a fourth at dinner with dear Mr. Podsnap, for the discussion of an interesting family topic." the last three words doubly underlined, and pointed with a note of admiration. And Twemlow, replying, not engaged, and more than delighted, goes, and this takes place. "'My dear Twemlow,' says Veneering, "'your ready response to Anastasia's unceremonious invitation is truly kind, and like an old, old friend. You know our dear friend Potsnap?' Twemlow ought to know the dear friend Potsnap.' who covered him with so much confusion, and he says he does know him, and Podsnap reciprocates. Apparently, Podsnap has been so wrought upon in a short time, as to believe that he has been intimate in the house many, many, many years, in the friendliest manner he is making himself quite at home with his back to the fire, executing a statuette of the Colossus at Rhodes. Tremlow has before noticed, in his feeble way, how soon the veneering guests become infected with the veneering fiction not, however, that he has the least notion of its being his own case. "'Our friends, uh, Alfred and Sophronia, pursues veneering the veiled prophet, "'our friends, Alfred and Sophronia, you'll be glad to hear, my dear fellows, "'are going to be married. "'As my wife and I make it a family affair, "'the entire direction of which we take upon ourselves, "'of course our first step is to communicate the fact to our family friends.' "'Oh,' thinks Twemlow, with his eyes on Podsnap, "'then there are only two of us, and he's the other.' "'I did hope,' Veneering goes on, "'to have had Lady Tippins to meet you. But she is always in request, and is unfortunately engaged.' "'Oh,' thinks Twemlow, with his eyes wandering, "'then there are three of us, and she's the other.' "'Mortimer Lightwood,' resumes Veneering, whom you both know, is out of town. But he writes in his whimsical manner that, as we ask him to be bridegroom's best man when the ceremony takes place, he will not refuse, though he doesn't see what he has to do with it. "'Oh,' thinks Twemlow, with his eyes rolling, "'then there are four of us, and he's the other. "'Boots and Brewer,' observe Veneering, whom you also know, I have not asked to-day, but I reserve them for the occasion. Then, thinks Twemlow, with his eyes shut, there are six, but here collapses, and does not completely recover until dinner is over, and the analytical has been requested to withdraw. We now come, says Veneering, to the point, the real point of our little family consultation. Sophronia, having lost both father and mother, "'Has no one to give her away.' "'Give her away yourself,' says Podsnap. "'My dear Podsnap, no. "'For three reasons. "'Firstly, because I couldn't take so much upon myself "'when I have respected family friends to remember. "'Secondly, because I'm not so vain as to think that I look the part.' Thirdly, because Anastasia is a little superstitious on the subject and feels averse to my giving away anybody until baby is old enough to be married, what would happen if they did? Podsnap inquires of Mrs. Veneering, my dear Mr. Podsnap. It's very foolish, I know, but I have an instinctive presentiment that if Hamilton gave away anybody else first, he would never give away baby. Thus Mrs. Veneering, with her open hands pressed together, and each of her eight aquiline fingers looking so very like her one aquiline nose, that the brand-new jewels on them seem necessary for distinction's sake. "'But, my dear Podsnap,' quoth Veneering, "'there is a tried friend of our family, who, I think and hope you will agree with me, Podsnap, is the friend on whom this agreeable duty almost naturally devolves.' that friend saying the words as if the company were about a hundred and fifty in number is now among us that friend is twemlow certainly from podsnap that friend veneering repeats with greater firmness is our dear good twemlow and i cannot sufficiently express to you my dear podsnap the pleasure i feel in having this opinion of mine and anastasia so readily confirmed by you that other equally familiar and tried friend who stands in the proud position i mean who proudly stands in the position or i ought rather to say who places anastasia and myself in the proud position of himself standing in the simple position Of baby's godfather and indeed veneering is much relieved in mind to find that podsnap betrays no jealousy of twemlow's elevation so it has come to pass that the spring van is strewing flowers on the rosy hours and on the staircase and that twemlow is surveying the ground on which he is to play his distinguished part tomorrow he has already been to the church and taken note of the various impediments in the aisle under the auspices of an extremely dreary widow, who opens the pews, and whose left hand appears to be in a state of acute rheumatism, but is in fact voluntarily doubled up to act as a money-box. And now Veneering shoots out of the study, wherein he is accustomed, when contemplative, to give his mind to the carving and gilding of the pilgrims going to Canterbury, in order to show Twemlow the little flourish he has prepared for the trumpets of fashion, describing how, that on the seventeenth instant— at Saint James's Church, the Reverend Blank Blank, assisted by the Reverend Dash Dash, united in the bonds of matrimony, Alfred Lamell Esquire of Sackville Street, Piccadilly, to Sophronia, only daughter of the late Horatio Akersham Esquire of Yorkshire. Also, how the fair bride was married from the house of Hamilton Veneering Esquire of Stucconia, and was given away by Melvin Twemlow, Esquire, of Duke Street, St. James's, second cousin to Lord Snigsworth, of Snigsworthy Park. While perusing which composition, Twemlow makes some opaque approach to perceiving that if the Reverend blank-blank, and the Reverend dash-dash fail, after this introduction, to become enrolled in the list of Veneering's dearest and oldest friends, they will have none but themselves to thank for it. After which appears Sophronia, whom Twemlow has seen twice in his lifetime, to thank Twemlow for counterfeiting the late Horatio Acheshire Esquire, broadly of Yorkshire. And after her appears Alfred, whom Twemlow has seen once in his lifetime, to do the same, and to make a pasty sort of glitter, as if he were constructed for candle-light only, and had been let out into daylight by some grand mistake. And after that comes Mrs. Veneering, in a pervadingly aquiline state of figure, and with transparent little knobs on her temple, like the little transparent knob on the bridge of her nose, worn out by worry and excitement, as she tells her dear Mr. Twemlow, and reluctantly revived with Curacoa by the analytical. And after that, the bridesmaids begin to come by railroad, from various parts of the country, and to come like adorable recruits enlisted by a sergeant not present, for on arriving at the veneering depot, they are in a barrack of strangers.' so twemlow goes home to duke street st james's to take a plate of mutton broth with a chop in it and look at the marriage service in order that he may cut in at the right place to-morrow and he is low and feels it dull over the livery stable yard and is distinctly aware of a dint in his heart made by the most adorable of the adorable bridesmaids for the poor little harmless gentleman once had his fancy like the rest of us and she didn't answer as she often does not and he thinks the adorable bridesmaid is like the fancy as she was then which she is not at all and that if the fancy had not married someone else for money but had married him for love he and she would have been happy which they wouldn't have been and that she has a tenderness for him still whereas her toughness is a proverb brooding over the fire with his dry little head and his dry little hands and his dry little elbows and his dry little knees twemlow is melancholy no adorable to bear me company here thinks he no adorable at the club a waste a waste a waste my twemlow and so drops asleep and has galvanic starts all over him betimes next morning that horrible old lady tippins relict of the late sir thomas tippins knighted in mistake for somebody else by His Majesty King George Third, who, while performing the ceremony, was graciously pleased to observe what, 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 who, 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 why, 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 begins to be dyed and varnished for the interesting occasion. She has a reputation for giving smart accounts of things, and she must be at these people's early, my dear, to lose nothing of the fun. Whereabout in the bonnet and drapery announced by her name— any fragment of the real woman may be concealed, is perhaps known to her maid, but you could easily buy all you see of her in Bond Street, or you might scalp her, and peel her, and scrape her, and make two Lady Tippins's out of her, and yet not penetrate to the genuine article. She has a large gold eye-glass, has Lady Tippins, to survey the proceedings with. If she had one in each eye, it might keep that other drooping lid up, and look more uniform but perennial youth is in her artificial flowers, and her list of lovers is full. "'Mortimer, you wretch!' says Lady Tippins, turning the eyeglass about and about. "'Where is your charge, the bridegroom?' "'Give you my honour, returns Mortimer. "'I don't know, and I don't care. "'Miserable! Is that the way you do your duty?' "'Beyond an impression that he is to sit upon my knee, and be seconded at some point of the solemnities like a principal at a prize-fight, I assure you I have no notion what my duty is,' returns Mortimer. "'Eugene is also in attendance, with a pervading air upon him of having presupposed the ceremony to be a funeral, and of being disappointed. The scene is the vestry-room of St. James's Church, with a number of leathery old registers on shelves, that might be bound in Lady Tippins's. "'But hark! a carriage at the gate, and Mortimer's man arrives, looking rather like a spurious Mephistopheles and an unacknowledged member of that gentleman's family, whom Lady Tippins, surveying through her eyeglass, considers a fine man, and quite a catch, and of whom Mortimer remarks in the lowest spirits as he approaches, "'I believe this is my fellow, confound him. More carriages at the gate, and lo, the rest of the characters.' Whom Lady Tippins, standing on a cushion, surveying through the eye glass, thus checks off: Bride, five and forty of a day, thirty shillings a yard; veil, fifteen pound; pocket handkerchief for present; bridesmaids kept down for fear of outshining bride; consequently, not girls, twelve and sixpence a yard. Veneering's flowers, snub-nosed one rather pretty, but too conscious of her stockings, bonnets, three pound ten. Twemlow, blessed release for the dear man, if she really was his daughter, nervous even under the pretense that she is. Well, he may be. Mrs. Veneering, never saw such velvet. Say, two thousand pounds as she stands, absolute jeweller's window. Father must have been a pawnbroker, or oh, how could these people do it? Attendant unknowns, Pokey. Ceremony performed, register signed, Lady Tippins escorted out of sacred edifice by Veneering, carriages rolling back to Staconia, servants with favours and flowers, Veneering's house reached, drawing rooms most magnificent. Here the podsnaps await the happy party. Mr. Podsnap, with his hair-brushes, made the most of, that imperial rocking-horse, Mrs. Podsnap, majestically skittish, here, too, are Boots and Brewer, and the two other buffers, each buffer with a flower in his buttonhole, his hair curled, and his gloves buttoned on tight, apparently come prepared, if anything had happened to the bridegroom, to be married instantly. Here, too, the bride's aunt and next relation, a widowed female of a Manusa sort, in a stony cap, glaring petrifaction at her fellow-creatures, here, too, the bride's trustee, an oil-cake-fed style of business gentleman, with moony spectacles, and an object of much interest. Veneering launching himself upon this trustee, as his oldest friend, which makes seven, Twemlow thought, and confidentially retiring with him into the conservatory, it is understood that Veneering is his co-trustee, and that they are arranging about the fortune." Buffers are even overheard to whisper thirty thousand pounds, with a smack and a relish suggestive of the very finest oysters. Pokey unknowns, amazed to find how intimately they know Veneering, pluck up spirit, fold their arms, and begin to contradict him before breakfast. What time Mrs. Veneering, carrying baby dressed as a bridesmaid, flits about among the company, emitting flashes of many-coloured lightning, from diamonds, emeralds, and rubies? The analytical, in course of time, achieving what he feels to be due to himself, in bringing to a dignified conclusion several quarrels he has on hand with the pastry-cook's men, announces breakfast. Dining-room no less magnificent than drawing-room, tables superb, all the camels out, and all laden, splendid cake, covered with cupids, silver, and true-lover's knots, splendid bracelet, produced by veneering, before going down, and clasped upon the arm of bride, yet nobody seems to think much more of the veneerings, than if they were a tolerable landlord and landlady doing the thing in the way of business, at so much a head. The bride and bridegroom talk and laugh apart, as has always been their manner. And the buffers work their way through the dishes, with systematic perseverance, as has always been their manner. And the pokey unknowns are exceedingly benevolent to one another, in invitations to take glasses of champagne. But Mrs. Podsnap, Arching her mane, and rocking her grandest, has a far more deferential audience than Mrs. Veneering, and Podsnap all but does the honours. Another dismal circumstance is, that Veneering, having the captivating tippins on one side of him, and the bride's aunt on the other, finds it immensely difficult to keep the peace. For Medusa, besides unmistakingly glaring petrifaction at the fascinating tippins, follows every lively remark made by that dear creature with an audible snort, which may be referable to a chronic cold in the head, but may also be referable to indignation and contempt. And this snort being regular in its reproduction, at length comes to be expected by the company, who make embarrassing pauses when it is falling due, and by waiting for it, render it more emphatic when it comes. The stony aunt has likewise an injurious way of rejecting all dishes whereof Lady Tippins partakes, saying aloud when they are proffered to her, No, 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 not for me, take it away. As with a set purpose of implying a misgiving that if nourished upon similar meats, she might come to be like that charmer, which would be a fatal consummation. Aware of her enemy, Lady Tippins tries a youthful sally or two, and tries the eye glass, but from the impenetrable cap and snorting armour of the stony aunt, all weapons rebound powerless. Another objectionable circumstance is that the poky unknowns support each other in being unimpressible. They persist in not being frightened by the gold and silver camels, and they are banded together to defy the elaborately chased ice-pails. They even seem to unite in some vague utterance of the sentiment that the landlord and landlady will make a pretty good profit out of this, and they almost carry themselves like customers. Nor is there compensating influence in the adorable bridesmaids, for, having very little interest in the bride, and none at all in one another, those lovely beings become, each one of her own account, depreciatingly contemplative of the millinery present, while the bridegroom's man, exhausted in the back of his chair, appears to be improving the occasion by penitentially contemplating all the wrong he has ever done. The difference between him and his friend Eugene being, at the latter, in the back of his chair, appears to be contemplating all the wrong he would like to do, particularly to the present company. In which state of affairs, the usual ceremonies rather droop and flag, and the splendid cake, when cut by the fair hand of the bride, has but an indigestible appearance. However, all the things indispensable to be said are said, and all the things indispensable to be done are done including Lady Tippins's yawning, falling asleep, and waking insensible, and there is hurried preparation for the nuptial journey to the Isle of Wight, and the outer air teems with brass bands and spectators, in full sight of whom the malignant star of the analytical has preordained that pain and ridicule shall befall him, for he, standing on the doorsteps to grace the departure, is suddenly caught a most prodigious thump on the side of his head with a heavy shoe which a buffer in the hall, champagne-flushed and wild of aim, has borrowed on the spur of the moment from the pastrycook's porter, to cast after the departing pair as an auspicious omen. So they all go up again into the gorgeous drawing-rooms, all of them flushed with breakfast, as having taken Scarlatina sociably, and there the combined unknowns do malignant things with their legs to Ottomans, and take as much as possible out of the splendid furniture. And so, Lady Tippins, quite undetermined whether to-day is the day before yesterday, or the day after to-morrow, or the week after next, fades away, and Mortimer Lightwood and Eugene fade away, and Twemlow fades away, and the stony aunt goes away, she declines to fade, proving rock to the last, and even the unknowns are slowly strained off, and it is all over. All over, that is to say, for the time being. But there is another time to come and it comes in about a fortnight, and it comes to Mr. and Mrs. Lammle on the sands at Shanklin in the Isle of Wight. Mr. and Mrs. Lammle have walked for some time on the Shanklin sands, and one may see by their footprints that they have not walked arm in arm, and that they have not walked in a straight track, and that they have walked in a moody humour, for the lady has prodded little spurting holes in the damp sand before her with her parasol, and the gentleman has trailed his stick after him as if he were of the Mephistopheles family, indeed, and had walked with a drooping tail. "'Do you mean to tell me, then, Sophronia?' Thus he begins, after a long silence, when Sophronia flashes fiercely, and turns upon him. "'Don't put it upon me, sir. I ask, do you mean to tell me?' Mr. Lammle? falls silent again, and they walk as before. Mrs. Lammle opens her nostrils, and bites her underlip. Mr. Lammle takes his gingerous whiskers in his left hand, and, bringing them together, frowns furtively at his beloved out of a thick gingerous bush. Do I mean to say, Mrs. Lammle after a time repeats with indignation, putting it on me, the unmanly disingenuousness Mr. Lammle stops, releases his whiskers, and looks at her, the what? Mrs. Lammle haughtily replies, without stopping and without looking back, "'The meanness!' He is at her side again in a pace or two, and he retorts, "'That is not what you said. You said disingenuousness.' "'What if I did?' "'There is no if in the case. You did. I did, then. And what of it? What of it?' Says Mr. Lammle. "'Have you the face to utter the word to me?' "'The face to?' replied Mrs Lammle, staring at him with cold scorn, pray, how dare you, sir, utter the word to me? I never did. As this happens to be true, Mrs Lammle is thrown on the feminine resource of saying, I don't care what you uttered or did not utter. After a little more walking, and a little more silence, Mr Lammle breaks the latter. You shall proceed in your own way. You claim a right to ask me, do I mean to tell you? Do I mean to tell you what? That you are a man of property? No. Then you married me on false pretenses? So be it. Next comes what you mean to say. Do you mean to say you are a woman of property? No. Then you married me on false pretenses?' If you were so dull a fortune-hunter, that you deceived yourself, or if you were so greedy and grasping, that you were over-willing to be deceived by appearances, is it my fault, you adventurer?' The lady demands, with great asperity. "'I asked Veneering, and he told me you were rich.' "'Veneering!' With great contempt. "'And what does Veneering know about me?' "'Was he not your trustee?' "'No. I have no trustee, but the one you saw on the day when you fraudulently married me. And his trust is not a very difficult one, for it is only an annuity of a hundred and fifteen pounds. I think there are some odd shillings or pence, if you are very particular.' Mr. Lammle bestows a by no means loving look upon the partner of his joys and sorrows, and he mutters something, but checks himself. "'Question for question.' It is my turn again, Mrs. Lammle. What made you suppose me a man of property? You made me suppose you so. Perhaps you will deny that. You always presented yourself to me in that character. But you asked somebody too. Come, Mrs. Lammle, admission for admission. You asked somebody. I asked Veneering. And Veneering knew as much of me as he knew of you, or as anybody knows of him. After more silent walking, the bride stops short, to say in a passionate manner, I will never forgive the Veneerings for this. Neither will I, returns the bridegroom. With that, they walk again, she making those angry spurts in the sand, he dragging that dejected tail the tide is low and seems to have thrown them together high on the bare shore a gull comes sweeping by their heads and flouts them there was a golden surface on the brown cliffs but now and behold they are only damp earth a taunting roar comes from the sea and the far-out rollers mount upon one another to look at the entrapped impostors and to join in impish and exultant gambols "'Do you pretend to believe,' Mrs. Lammle? resumed sternly, "'when you talk of my marrying you for worldly advantages, "'that it was within the bounds of reasonable probability "'that I would have married you for yourself?' "'Again, there are two sides to the question, Mrs. Lammle. "'What do you pretend to believe?' "'So, you first deceive me, and then insult me.' cries the lady, with a heaving bosom. "'Not at all. I have originated nothing. The double-edged question was yours.' "'Was mine?' The bride repeats, and her parasol breaks in her angry hand. "'His colour has turned to a livid white, and ominous marks have come to light about his nose, as if the finger of the very devil himself had, within the last few moments, touched it here and there. But he has repressive power, and she has none.' "'Throw it away.' he coolly recommends, as to the parasol. You have made it useless. You look ridiculous with it. Whereupon she calls him in her rage, a deliberate villain, and so casts the broken thing from her, as that it strikes him in falling. The finger-marks are something whiter for the instant, but he walks on at her side. She bursts into tears, declaring herself the wretchedest, the most deceived, the worst used, of women." Then she says, that if she had the courage to kill herself, she would do it. Then she calls him vile impostor. Then she asks him why, in the disappointment of his base speculation, he does not take her life with his own hand, under the present favourable circumstances. Then she cries again. Then she is enraged again, and makes some mention of swindlers. Finally, she sits down crying on a block of stone, and is in all the known and unknown humours of her sex at once. Pending her changes, those aforesaid marks in his face have come and gone, now here, now there, like white steps of a pipe on which the diabolical performer has played a tune. Also, his livid lips are parted at last, as if he were breathless with running, yet he is not. Now, get up, Mrs. Lammle, and let us speak reasonably. She sits upon her stone, and takes no heed of him. Get up, I tell you! Raising her head, she looks contemptuously in his face, and repeats, "'You tell me! Tell me, forsooth!' She affects not to know that his eyes are fastened on her, as she droops her head again, but her whole figure reveals that she knows it uneasily. "'Enough of this. Come, you hear? Get up!' Yielding to his hand, she rises, and they walk again, but this time with their faces turned towards their place of residence. Mrs. Lammle, we have both been deceiving, and we have both been deceived. We have both been biting, and we have both been bitten. In a nutshell, there is the state of the case. You sought me out. Let us have done with that. We know very well how it was. Why should you and I talk about it, when you and I can't disguise it? To proceed, I am disappointed, and cut a poor figure am i no one some one and i was coming to you if you had waited a moment you too are disappointed and cut a poor figure <sighs> an injured figure you are now cool enough sophronia to see that you can't be injured without my being equally injured and that therefore the mere word is not to the purpose when i look back i wonder how i can have been such a fool "'as to take you to such great an extent upon trust.' "'And when I look back,' the bride cries, interrupting, "'and when you look back, you wonder how you can have been—he'll excuse the word. "'Most certainly, with so much reason. "'Such a fool as to take me to so great an extent upon trust. "'But the folly is committed on both sides. "'I cannot get rid of you, you cannot get rid of me.' What follows? "'Shame and misery!' the bride bitterly replies. "'I don't know. My mutual understanding follows, and I think it may carry us through. Here I split my discourse. Give me your arm, Sophronia. Into three heads, to make it shorter and plainer. Firstly, it's enough to have been done— without the mortification of being known to have been done. So we agree to keep the fact to ourselves. You agree? If it is possible, I do. Possible? We have pretended well enough to one another. Can't we a united pretend to the world? Agreed? Secondly, we owe the veneerings a grudge, and we owe all other people the grudge of wishing them to be taken in, as we ourselves have been taken in. Agreed? "'Yes. Agreed. "'We come smoothly to thirdly. "'You have called me an adventurer, Sophronia. "'So I am. "'In plain, uncomplimentary English, so I am. "'So are you, my dear. "'So are many people. "'We agree to keep our own secret, "'and to work together in furtherance of our own schemes.' "'What schemes?' any scheme that will bring us money. By our own schemes, I mean our joint interest. Agreed? She answers, after a little hesitation. I suppose so. Agreed. Carried at once, you see. Now, Sophronia, only half a dozen words more. We know one another perfectly.' "'Don't be tempted into twitting me with the past knowledge that you have of me, because it is identical with the past knowledge that I have of you, and in twitting me, you twit yourself, and I don't want to hear you do it. With this good understanding established between us, it is better never done. To wind up all, you have shown temper to-day, Severonia. Don't be betrayed into doing so again, because I have a devil of a temper myself.' So, the happy pair, with this hopeful marriage-contract thus signed, sealed, and delivered, repair homeward. If, when those infernal finger-marks were on the white and breathless countenance of Alfred Lammle Esquire, they denoted that he conceived the purpose of subduing his dear wife, Mrs. Alfred Lammle, by at once divesting her of any lingering reality or pretence of self-respect, the purpose would seem to have been presently executed. The mature young lady, has mighty little need of powder now, for her downcast face, as he escorts her in the light of the setting sun, to their abode of bliss. END OF BOOK ONE CHAPTER TEN BOOK ONE CHAPTER ELEVEN OF OUR MUTUAL FRIEND This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book I. The Cup and the Lip. Chapter 11. Podsnappery. Mr. Podsnap was well to do, and stood very high in Mr. Podsnap's opinion. Beginning with a good inheritance, he had married a good inheritance, and had thriven exceedingly in the marine insurance way and was quite satisfied. He never could make out why everybody was not quite satisfied, and he felt conscious that he set a brilliant social example in being particularly well satisfied with most things, and, above all other things, with himself. Thus, happily acquainted with his own merit and importance, Mr. Podsnap settled that whatever he put behind him, he put out of existence. There was a dignified conclusiveness— not to add a grand convenience, in this way of getting rid of disagreeables, which had done much towards establishing Mr. Podsnap in his lofty place in Mr. Podsnap's satisfaction. "'I don't want to know about it. I don't choose to discuss it. I don't admit it.' Mr. Podsnap had even acquired a peculiar flourish of his right arm, in often clearing the world of its most difficult problems, by sweeping them behind him, and consequently sheer away.' those words, and a flushed face, for they affronted him. Mr. Podsnap's world was not a very large world, morally, no, nor even geographically, seeing that although his business was sustained upon commerce with other countries, he considered other countries, with that important reservation, a mistake, and of their manners and customs would conclusively observe, not English. When, presto, with a flourish of the arm and a flush of the face— they were swept away elsewhere the world got up at eight shaved close at a quarter past breakfasted at nine went to the city at ten came home at half-past five and dined at seven mr podsnap's notions of the arts in their integrity might have been stated thus literature large print Respectfully descriptive of getting up at eight, shaving close at a quarter past, breakfasting at nine, going to the city at ten, coming home at half-past five, and dining at seven. Painting and sculpture, models and portraits representing professors of getting up at eight, shaving close at a quarter past, breakfasting at nine, going to the city at ten, coming home at half-past five, and dining at seven. Music, a respectable performance, without variations, on stringed and wind instruments, sedately expressive of getting up at eight, shaving close at a quarter past, breakfasting at nine, going to the city at ten, coming home at half-past five, and dining at seven. Nothing else to be permitted to those same vagrants the arts, on pain of excommunication. Nothing else to be anywhere." As a so eminently respectable man, Mr. Podsnap was sensible of its being required of him to take providence under his protection. Consequently, he always knew exactly what providence meant. Inferior and less respectable men might fall short of that mark, but Mr. Podsnap was always up to it. And it was very remarkable—it must have been very comfortable—that what providence meant was invariably what Mr. Podsnap meant." "'These may be said to have been the articles of a faith and school "'which the present chapter takes the liberty of calling "'after its representative man, Podsnappery. "'They were confined within close bounds, "'as Mr. Podsnap's own head was confined by his shirt-collar, "'and they were enunciated with a sounding pomp "'that smacked of the creaking of Mr. Podsnap's own boots. "'There was a Miss Podsnap, "'and this young rocking-horse was being trained "'in her mother's art of prancing in a stately manner, without ever getting on. But the high parental action was not yet imparted to her, and in truth she was but an undersized damsel, with high shoulders, low spirits, chilled elbows, and a rasped surface of nose, who seemed to take occasional frosty peeps out of childhood into womanhood, and to shrink back again, overcome by her mother's head-dress and her father from head to foot, crushed by the mere dead weight of podsnappery. A certain institution, in Mr. Podsnap's mind, which he called the young person, may be considered to have been embodied in Miss Podsnap, his daughter. It was an inconvenient and exacting institution, as requiring everything in the universe to be filed down and fitted to it. The question about everything was, would it bring a blush into the cheek of the young person?' and the inconvenience of the young person was that according to mr podsnap she seemed always liable to burst into blushes when there was no need at all there appeared to be no line of demarcation between the young person's excessive innocence and another person's guiltiest knowledge take mr podsnap's word for it and the soberest tints of drab white lilac and grey were all flaming red to this troublesome bull of a young person the Podsnaps lived in a shady angle adjoining Portman Square. They were a kind of people certain to dwell in the shade, wherever they dwelt. Miss Podsnap's life had been, from her first appearance on this planet, altogether of a shady order, for Mr Podsnap's young person was likely to get little good out of association with other young persons, and had therefore been restricted to companionship with not very congenial older persons, and with massive furniture miss podsnap's early views of life being principally derived from the reflection of it in her father's boots and in the walnut and rosewood tables of the dim drawing-rooms and in their swarthy giants of looking-glasses were of a sombre cast and it was not wonderful that now when she was on most days solemnly tooled through the park by the side of her mother in a great tall custard coloured phaeton she showed above the apron of that vehicle like a dejected young person sitting up in bed to take a startled look at things in general, and very strongly desiring to get her head under the counterpane again. Said Mr. Podsnap to Mrs. Podsnap, Georgiana is almost eighteen, said Mrs. Podsnap to Mr. Podsnap assenting, almost eighteen, said Mr. Podsnap then to Mrs. Podsnap, really, I think we shall have some people on Georgiana's birthday said mrs podsnap then to mr podsnap which will enable us to clear off all those people who are due so it came to pass that mr and mrs podsnap requested the honour of the company of seventeen friends of their souls at dinner "'and that they substituted other friends of their souls "'for such of the seventeen original friends of their souls "'as deeply regretted that a prior engagement "'prevented their having the honour of dining "'with Mr. and Mrs. Potsnap, "'in pursuance of their kind invitation, "'and that Mrs. Potsnap said of all these inconsolable personages, "'as she checked them off with a pencil in her list, "'asked, at any rate, and got rid of, "'and that they successfully disposed of a good many friends "'of their souls in this way, "'and felt their consciences much lightened.' there were still other friends of their souls who were not entitled to be asked to dinner but had a claim to be invited to come and take a haunch of mutton vapour bath at half-past nine for the clearing off of these worthies mrs podsnap added a small and early evening to the dinner and looked in at the music shop to bespeak a well-conducted automaton to come and play quadrilles for a carpet dance mr and mrs veneering and mr and mrs veneering's brand-new bride and bridegroom were of the dinner company but the Podsnap establishment had nothing else in common with the veneerings. Mr. Podsnap could tolerate taste in a mushroom man, who stood in need of that sort of thing, but was far above it himself. Hideous solidity was the characteristic of the Podsnap plate. Everything was made to look as heavy as it could, and to take up as much room as possible. Everything said boastfully, Here you have as much of me in my ugliness as if I were only lead. "'but I am so many ounces of precious metal worth so much an ounce. "'Wouldn't you like to melt me down?' "'A corpulent, straddling ipern, blotched all over as if it had broken out in an eruption "'rather than been ornamented, delivered this address from an unsightly silver platform "'in the centre of the table.' Four silver wine-coolers, each furnished with four staring heads, each head obtrusively "'carrying a big silver ring in each of its ears, conveyed the sentiment up and down the "'table, and handed it on to the pot-bellied silver salt cellars. "'All the big silver spoons and forks widened the mouths of the company expressly for the "'purpose of thrusting the sentiment down their throats with every morsel they ate.' the majority of the guests were like the plate and included several heavy articles weighing ever so much but there was a foreign gentleman among them whom mr podsnap had invited after much debate with himself believing the whole european continent to be in mortal alliance against the young person and there was a droll disposition not only on the part of mr podsnap but of everybody else to treat him as if he were a child who was hard of hearing as a delicate concession to this unfortunately born foreigner Mr Podsnap, in receiving him, had presented his wife as Madame Podsnap, also his daughter as Mademoiselle Podsnap, with some inclination to add Ma fille, in which bold venture, however, he checked himself. The Veneerings being at that time the only other arrivals, he had added, in a condescendingly explanatory manner, Monsieur Veneering, and had then subsided into English. How do you like London, Mr. Podsnap now inquired from his station of host as if he were administering something in the nature of a powder or potion to the deaf child london Londres, uh, London, The foreign gentleman admired it. You find it very large, said Mr. Podsnap spaciously. The foreign gentleman found it very large and very rich. The foreign gentleman found it, without doubt, énormément rich. "'Enormously rich, we say,' returned Mr. Potsnap, in a condescending manner. "'Our English adverbs do not terminate in mong, and we pronounce the Ch as if there were a T before it. We say rich.' "'Rich,' remarked the foreign gentleman. "'And do you find, sir?' pursued Mr. Potsnap with dignity—'many evidences that strike you of our British Constitution in the streets of the world's metropolis, London, Londres, London?' The foreign gentleman begged to be pardoned, but did not altogether understand. "'The Constitution Britannique?' Mr. Podsnap explained, as if he were teaching in an infant school, "We say British, but you say Britannic, you know." Forgivingly, as if that were not his fault, the Constitution, sir. The foreign gentleman said, "Mes yes, I, I know him." A youngish, sallowish gentleman in spectacles with a lumpy forehead, seated in a supplementary chair at a corner of the table here caused a profound sensation, by saying in a raised voice, es and then stopping dead. "'Mais oui,' said the foreign gentleman, turning towards him, es Quoi donc?' But the gentleman, with the lumpy forehead, having for the time delivered himself of all that he found behind his lumps, spake for the time no more. "'I was inquiring—' "'said Mr. Podsnap, resuming the thread of his discourse. "'Whether you have observed in our streets, "'as we should say, upon our pavy, "'as you would say, any tokens?' "'The foreign gentleman, with patient courtesy, "'entreated pardon. "'But what was tokens?' "'Marks,' said Mr. Podsnap. "'Signs, you know, appearances, traces.' "'Ah, of a horse,' inquired the foreign gentleman. "'We call it Horse,' said Mr. Podsnap with forbearance. "'In England, Angleterry, England, we aspirate the H, and we say Horse. "'Only our lower classes say Horse.' "'Pardon,' said the foreign gentleman, "'I am always wrong.' "'Our language,' said Mr. Pottsnap, with a gracious consciousness of being always right, "'is difficult. Ours is a copious language, and trying to strangers. I will not pursue my question.' But the lumpy gentleman, unwilling to give it up, again madly said, "'Esker!' and again spake no more. It merely referred— "'Mr. Podsnap explained with a sense of meritorious proprietorship— "'to our constitution, sir. "'We, Englishmen, are very proud of our constitution, sir. "'It was bestowed upon us by Providence. "'No other country is so favoured as this country.' "'And other countries?' "'The foreign gentleman was beginning, when Mr. Podsnap put him right again. "'We do not say other.' "'We say other. "'The letters are T and H. "'You say T and H. you know, still with clemency. "'The sound is TH, TH. "'And other countries,' said the foreign gentleman, "'they do how?' "'They do, sir,' returned Mr. Podsnap, gravely shaking his head. "'They (laughs) do—' "'I am sorry to be obliged to say it, as they do.' "'It was a little particular of providence,' said the foreign gentleman, laughing, "'for the frontier is not large.' "'Undoubtedly,' assented Mr. Potsnap. "'But so it is. It was the charter of the land. This island was blessed, sir.' to the direct exclusion of such other countries as-as there may happen to be and if we were all englishmen present i would say added mr podsnap looking round upon his compatriots and sounding solemnly with his theme that there is in the englishman a combination of qualities a modesty, an independence, a responsibility, a repose, combined with an absence of everything calculated to call a blush into the cheeks of a young person, which one would seek in vain among the nations of the earth. Having delivered this little summary, Mr. Podsnap's face flushed, as he thought of the remote possibility of its being at all qualified by any prejudiced citizen of any other country and, with his favourite right-arm flourish, he put the rest of Europe, and the whole of Asia, Africa, and America, nowhere. The audience were much edified by this passage of words, and Mr. Podsnap, feeling that he was in rather remarkable force to-day, became smiling and conversational. "'Has anything more been heard, Veneering?' he inquired. "'Of the lucky legatee?' "'Nothing more,' returned Veneering.' than that he has come into possession of the property i am told people now call him the golden dustman i mentioned to you some time ago i think that the young lady whose intended husband was murdered is daughter to a clerk of mine yes you told me that said podsnap and by the by i wish you would tell it again here for it's a curious coincidence curious that the first news of the discovery should have been brought straight to your table when i was there and curious that one of your people should have been so nearly interested in it just relate that will you veneering was more than ready to do it for he had prospered exceedingly upon the harm and murder and had turned the social distinction it conferred upon him to the account of making several dozen of brand-new bosom friends indeed such another lucky hit would almost have set him up in that way to his satisfaction so addressing himself to the most desirable of his neighbours while mrs veneering secured the next most desirable he plunged into the case and emerged from it twenty minutes afterwards with the bank director in his arms in the meantime mrs veneering had dived into the same waters for a wealthy shipbroker and had brought him up safe and sound by the hair then mrs veneering had to relate to a larger circle how she had been to see the girl and how she was really pretty and considering her station presentable and this she did with such a successful display of her eight aquiline fingers and their encircling jewels that she happily laid hold of a drifting general officer his wife and daughter and not only restored their animation which had become suspended but made them lively friends within an hour Although Mr. Podsnap would, in a general way, have highly disapproved of bodies and rivers, as ineligible topics with reference to the cheek of the young person, he had, as one may say, a share in this affair, which made him a part proprietor. As its returns were immediate, too, in the way of restraining the company from speechless contemplation of the wine-coolers, it paid, and he was satisfied and now the haunch of mutton-vapour bath having received a gamey infusion and a few last touches of sweets and coffee was quite ready and the bathers came but not before the discreet automaton had got behind the bars of the piano-music desk and there presented the appearance of a captive languishing in a rosewood jail and who now so pleasant or so well assorted as by mr and mrs Alfred Lammle he all sparkle she all gracious contentment both at occasional intervals exchanging looks like partners at cards who played a game against all england there was not much youth among the bathers but there was no youth the young person always excepted in the articles of podsnappery bald bathers folded their arms and talked to mr podsnap on the hearth-rug sleek whiskered bathers with hats in their hands lunged at mrs podsnap and retreated prowling bathers went about looking into ornamental boxes and bowls as if they had suspicions of larceny on the part of the podsnaps and expected to find something they had lost at the bottom bathers of the gentler sex sat silently comparing ivory shoulders all this time and always poor little miss podsnap whose tiny efforts if she had made any were swallowed up in the magnificence of her mother's rocking, kept herself as much out of sight and mind as she could, and appeared to be counting on many dismal returns of the day. It was somehow understood, as a secret article in the state proprieties of Podsnappery that nothing must be said about the day. Consequently, this young damsel's nativity was hushed up and looked over, as if it were agreed on all hands that it would have been better that she had never been born. The Lammles were so fond of the dear Veneerings that they could not for some time detach themselves from those excellent friends but at length either a very open smile on mr Lammle's part or a very secret elevation of one of his gingerous eyebrows certainly the one or the other seemed to say to mrs Lammle why don't you play and so looking about her she saw Miss Podsnap and seeming to say responsively that card and to be answered yes went and sat beside Miss Podsnap Mrs. Lammle was overjoyed to escape into a corner for a little quiet talk. It promised to be a very quiet talk, for Miss Podsnap replied, in a flutter, "'Oh, indeed, it's very kind of you, but I'm afraid I don't talk.' "'Let us make a beginning,' said the insinuating Mrs. Lammle, with her best smile. "'Oh, I'm afraid you'll find me very dull. But Ma talks.' That was plainly to be seen, for Ma was talking then, at her usual canter, with arched head and mane, opened eyes and nostrils. Fond of reading, perhaps? Yes. At least, I don't mind that so much, returned Miss Potsnap. Music! So insinuating with Mrs. Lammle, that she got half a dozen m's into the word before she got it out. I haven't the nerve to play, even if I could. Ma plays. At exactly the same canter, and with a certain flourishing appearance of doing something, Ma did, in fact, occasionally take a rock upon the instrument. "'Of course you like dancing.' "'Oh, no, I don't,' said Miss Podsnap. "'No, with your youth and attractions. Truly, my dear, you surprise me.' "'I can't say,' observed Miss Podsnap after hesitating considerably, and stealing several timid looks at Mrs. Lammle's carefully arranged face, how I might have liked it, if I had been a—you won't mention it, will you? My dear, never. No, I am sure you won't. I can't say, then, how I should have liked it, if I had been a chimney-sweep on May-day. Gracious! was the exclamation which amazement elicited from Mrs. Lammle. There! I knew you'd wonder, but you won't mention it, will you? "'Upon my word, my love,' said Mrs. Lammle, "'you make me ten times more desirous, now I talk to you, "'to know you well, than I was when I sat over yonder looking at you. "'How I wish we could be real friends! "'Try me as a real friend. "'Come, don't fancy me a frumpy old married woman, my dear. "'I was married but the other day, you know. "'I am dressed as a bride now, you see. "'About the chimney-sweeps.' "'Hush! Marl here!' "'She can't hear from where she sits.' "'Don't you be too sure of that?' said Miss Podsnap, in a lower voice. "'Well, what I mean is that they seem to enjoy it.' "'And that perhaps you would have enjoyed it if you had been one of them?' Miss Podsnap nodded significantly. "'Then you don't enjoy it now?' "'How is it possible?' "'said Miss Potsnap. "'Oh, it is such a dreadful thing. "'If I was wicked enough, and strong enough, to kill anybody, "'it should be my partner.' "'This was such an entirely new view of the Terpsichorean art, as "'socially practised, that Mrs. Lammle looked at her young friend "'in some astonishment. "'Her young friend sat nervously twiddling her fingers in a pinioned "'attitude, as if he were trying to hide her elbows. "'But this latter utopian object, in short sleeves, "'always appeared to be the great inoffensive aim of her existence.' "'It sounds horrid, don't it?' said Miss Potsnap, with a penitential face. Mrs. Lammle, not very well knowing what to answer, resolved herself into a look of smiling encouragement. "'But it is, and it always has been,' pursued Miss Podsnap. "'such a trial to me. I so dread being awful. And it is so awful. No one knows what I suffered at Madame Sartouce's, where I learnt to dance, and make presentation curtsies, and other dreadful things, or at least where they tried to teach me.' "'Ma can do it.' "'At any rate, my love,' said Mrs. Lammle soothingly, "'that's over.' "'Yes, it's over,' returned Miss Potsnap. "'But there's nothing gained by that. "'It's worse here than at Madame Sartouse's. "'Ma was there, and Ma was here. "'But Pa wasn't there, and company wasn't there, "'and they were not real partners. "'Oh, there's Ma speaking to the man at the piano.' oh there's ma going up to somebody oh i know she's going to bring him to me oh please don't oh please don't please don't oh keep away keep away keep away these pious ejaculations miss Podsap uttered with her eyes closed and her head leaning back against the wall but the ogre advanced under the pilotage of ma and ma said georgiana mr grompus and the ogre clutched his victim and bore her off to his castle in the top couple then the discreet automaton, who had surveyed his ground, played a blossomless, tuneless set, and sixteen disciples of Potsnappery went through the figures of one, getting up at eight, and shaving close at a quarter past, two, breakfasting at nine, three, going to the city at ten, four, coming home at half-past five, five, dining at seven, and the grand chain. While these solemnities were in progress, Mr. Alfred Lammle, most loving of husbands, approached the chair of Mrs. Alfred Lammle, most loving of wives, and bending over the back of it trifled for some few seconds with Mrs. Lammle's bracelet. Slightly in contrast with this brief airy toying, one might have noticed a certain dark attention in Mrs. Lammle's face as she said some words with her eyes on Mr. Lammle's waistcoat and seemed in return to receive some lesson, but it was all done as a breath passes from a mirror and now the grand chain riveted to the last link the discreet automaton ceased and the sixteen two and two took a walk among the furniture and herein the unconsciousness of the ogre grompus was pleasantly conspicuous for that complacent monster, believing that he was giving Miss Podsnap a treat, prolonged to the utmost stretch of possibility a peripatetic account of an archery-meeting, while his victim, heading the procession of sixteen as it slowly circled about, like a revolving funeral, never raised her eyes, except once to steal a glance at Mrs. Lammle, expressive of intense despair. At length the procession was dissolved by the violent arrival of a nutmeg, before which the drawing-room door bounced open, as if it were a cannon-ball, and while that fragrant article, dispersed through several glasses of coloured warm water, was going the round of society, Miss Potsnap returned to her seat by her new friend. "'Oh, my goodness!' said Miss Potsnap. "'That's over! I hope you didn't look at me.' "'My dear, why not? Oh, I know all about myself,' said Miss Potsnap. "'I'll tell you something I know about you, my dear,' returned Mrs. Lammle, in her winning way, "'and that is, you are most unnecessarily shy.' "'Ma ain't,' said Miss Podsnap. "'I detest you. Go along.' This shot was levelled under her breath, at the gallant Grompus for bestowing an insinuating smile upon her in passing. "'Pardon me if I scarcely see, my dear Miss Podsnap,' Mrs. Lammle was beginning, when the young lady interposed—' "'If we are going to be real friends—and I suppose we are, for you are the only person who ever proposed it—don't let us be awful. It's awful enough to be Miss Potsnap without being called so. Call me Georgiana.' "'Dearest Georgiana,' Mrs. Lammle began again. "'Thank you,' said Miss Potsnap. "'Dearest Georgiana, pardon me if I scarcely see, my love, why your mamma is not being shy.' "'is a reason why you should be?' "'Don't you really see that?' asked Miss Podsnap, "'plucking at her fingers in a troubled manner, "'and furtively casting her eyes now on Mrs. Lammle, "'now on the ground. "'Then perhaps it isn't.' "'My dearest Georgiana, "'you defer much too readily to my poor opinion. "'Indeed, it is not even an opinion, darling, for it is only a confession of my dullness.' "'Oh, you are not dull,' returned Miss Podsnap. "'I am dull, but you couldn't have made me talk if you were.' Some little touch of conscience, answering this perception of her having gained a purpose, called bloom enough into Mrs. Lammle's face to make it look brighter, as she sat smiling her best smile on her dear Georgiana, and shaking her head with an affectionate playfulness. Not that it meant anything, but that Georgiana seemed to like it. "'What I mean is,' pursued Georgiana, that ma being so endowed with awfulness and pa being so endowed with awfulness and there being so much awfulness everywhere i mean at least everywhere where i am perhaps it makes me who am so deficient in awfulness and frightened at it i say it very badly i don't know whether you can understand what i mean perfectly dearest georgiana mrs lammle was proceeding with every reassuring while when the head of that young lady suddenly went back against the wall again and her eyes closed oh there's ma being awful with somebody with a glass in his eye oh i know she's going to bring him here oh don't bring him don't bring him oh he'll be my partner with this glass in his eye oh what shall i do this time georgiana accompanied her ejaculations with taps of her feet upon the floor and was altogether in quite a desperate condition But there was no escape from the majestic Mrs. Podsnap's production of an ambling stranger, with one eye screwed up into extinction, and the other framed and glazed, who, having looked down out of that organ as if he described Miss Podsnap at the bottom of some perpendicular shaft, brought her to the surface, and ambled off with her. And then the captive at the piano played another set, expressive of his mournful aspirations after freedom, and other sixteen went through the former melancholy motions— "'and the ambler took Miss Podsnap for a furniture-walk, "'as if he had struck out an entirely original conception. "'In the meantime, a stray personage of a meek demeanour "'who had wandered to the hearthrug "'and got among the heads of tribes assembled there "'in conference with Mr. Podsnap, "'eliminated Mr. Podsnap's flush and flourish "'by a highly unpolite remark, "'no less than a reference to the circumstance "'that some half-dozen people had lately died "'in the streets of starvation.' It was clearly ill-timed after dinner. It was not adapted to the cheek of the young person. It was not in good taste. "'I don't believe it,' said Mr. Potsnap, putting it behind him. The meek man was afraid we must take it as proved, because there were the inquests, and the registrar's returns. "'Then it was their own fault,' said Mr. Potsnap. Veneering and other elders of tribes commended this way out of it, at once a short cut and a broad road.' the man of meek demeanour intimated that truly it would seem from the facts as if starvation had been forced upon the culprits in question as if in their wretched manner they had made their weak protests against it as if they would have taken the liberty of staving it off if they could as if they would rather not have been starved upon the whole if perfectly agreeable to all parties there is not said Mr. Potsnap, flushing angrily. "'There is not a country in the world, sir, where so noble a provision is made for the poor as in this country.' The meek man was quite willing to concede that, but perhaps it rendered the matter even worse, as showing that there must be something appallingly wrong somewhere. "'Where?' said Mr. Potsnap. The meek man hinted, "'Wouldn't it be well to try, very seriously, to find out where?' "'Ah,' said Mr. Potsnap, "'easy to say somewhere.' "'Not so easy to say where, but I see what you are driving at. "'I knew it from the first. "'Centralisation?' "'No. "'Never with my consent. "'Not English.' "'An approving murmur arose from the heads of tribes, as saying, "'There you have him. "'Hold him.' "'He was not aware,' the meek man submitted of himself, "'that he was driving at any isation.' He had no favourite ization that he knew of, but he certainly was more staggered by these terrible occurrences than he was by names of howsoever so many syllables. Might he ask, was dying of destitution and neglect necessarily English? "'You know what the population of London is, I suppose,' said Mr. Potsnap. "'The meek man supposed he did. But supposed that had absolutely nothing to do with it, if its laws were well administered. "'And you know—' "'At least I hope you know,' said Mr. Podsnap with severity, "'that Providence has declared that you shall have the poor always with you.' The meek man also hoped he knew that. "'I am glad to hear it,' said Mr. Podsnap with a portentous air. "'I am glad to hear it. It will render you cautious how you fly in the face of Providence.' In reference to that absurd and irreverent conventional phrase— the meek man said, of which Mr. Podsnap was not responsible. He, the meek man, had no fear of doing anything so impossible, but but Mr. Podsnap felt that the time had come for flushing and flourishing this meek man down for good. So he said, "'I must decline to pursue this painful discussion. It is not pleasant to my feelings. It is repugnant to my feelings. I have said that I do not admit these things. I have also said that if they do occur, not that I admit it, "'the fault lies with the sufferers themselves. "'It is not for me,' Mr. Podsnap pointed me forcibly, "'as adding by implication, though it may be all very well for you. "'It is not for me to impugn the workings of Providence. "'I know better than that, I trust, and I have mentioned, "'what the intentions of Providence are. "'Besides,' said Mr. Podsnap, "'flushing high up among his hair-brushes with a strong consciousness of personal affront, "'the subject is a very disagreeable one.' "'I will go so far as to say it is an odious one. "'It is not one to be introduced among our wives and young persons, "'and I,' he finished with that flourish of his arm, "'which added more expressively than any words, "'and I remove it from the face of the earth.' "'Simultaneously, with this quenching of the meek man's ineffectual fire, "'Georgiana, having left the ambler up a lane of sofa, "'in a no thoroughfare of back-drawing-room, to find his own way out, "'came back to Mrs. Lammle and who should be with Mrs. Lammle, but Mr. Lammle, so fond of her. Alfred, my love, here is my friend Georgiana. Dearest girl, you must like my husband next to me. Mr. Lammle was proud to be so distinguished by this special commendation to Miss Podsnap's favour, but if Mr. Lammle were prone to be jealous of his dear Sophronia's friendships, he would be jealous of her feeling towards Miss Podsnap. Say... "'Georgiana, darling,' interposed his wife. "'Towards, uh, shall I, Georgiana?' Mr. Lammle uttered the name with a delicate curve of his right hand from his lips outward. "'For never have I known Sophronia, who is not apt to take sudden likings, so attracted and so captivated as she is by, shall I once more, Georgiana?' The object of this homage sat uneasily enough in receipt of it, "'then said, turning to Mrs. Lammle, much embarrassed, "'I wonder what you like me for. "'I'm sure I can't think.' "'Dearest Georgiana, for yourself, "'for your difference from all around you.' "'Well, that may be, "'for I think I like you for your difference from all around me,' "'said Georgiana, with a smile of relief. "'We must be going with the rest,' observed Mrs. Lammle rising with a show of unwillingness amidst a general dispersal we are real friends georgiana dear real good-night dear girl she had established an attraction over the shrinking nature upon which her smiling eyes were fixed but georgiana held her hand while she answered in a secret and half frightened tone don't forget me when you are gone away and come again soon good-night Charming to see Mr and Mrs Lammle taking leave so gracefully and going down the stairs so lovingly and sweetly; not quite so charming to see their smiling faces fall and brood as they dropped moodily into separate corners of their little carriage; but to be sure that was a sight behind the scenes which nobody saw and which nobody was meant to see. Certain big heavy vehicles built on the model of the Podsnap Plate took away the heavy articles of guests weighing ever so much and the less valuable articles got away after their various manners and the podsnap plate was put to bed as mr podsnap stood with his back to the drawing-room fire pulling up his shirt collar like a veritable cock of the walk literally pluming himself in the midst of his possessions nothing would have astonished him more than an intimation that miss podsnap or any other young person properly born and bred could not be exactly put away like the plate brought out like the plate, polished like the plate, counted, weighed, and valued like the plate, that such a young person could possibly have a morbid vacancy in the heart for anything younger than the plate, or less monotonous than the plate, or that such a young person's thoughts could try to scale the region bounded on the north, south, east, and west by the plate, was a monstrous imagination which he would, on the spot, have flourished into space.' This, perhaps, in some sort, arose from Mr. Podsnap's blushing young person being, so to speak, all-cheek, whereas there is a possibility that there may be young persons of a rather more complex organisation. If Mr. Podsnap, pulling up his shirt-collar, could only have heard himself called, That Fellow, in a certain short dialogue, which passed between Mr. and Mrs. Lammle in their opposite corners of their little carriage rolling home, "'Sophronia, are you awake?' "'Am I likely to be asleep, sir?' "'Very likely, I should think, after that fellow's company. "'Attend to what I am going to say. "'I have attended to what you have already said, have I not? "'What else have I been doing all to-night?' "'Attend, I tell you,' in a raised voice, "'to what I am going to say. "'Keep close to that idiot girl. "'Keep her under your thumb.' You have her fast, and you are not to let her go. Do you hear? I hear you. I foresee there is money to be made out of this, besides taking that fellow down a peg. We owe each other money, you know. Mrs. Lammle winced a little at the reminder, but only enough to shake her scents and essences anew into the atmosphere of the little carriage, as she settled herself afresh in her own dark corner. End of book one, chapter eleven. Book one, chapter twelve of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. BOOK I. THE CUP AND THE LIP. CHAPTER Twelve: THE SWEAT OF AN HONEST MAN'S BROW. Mr. Mortimer Lightwood and Mr. Eugene Rayburn took a coffee-house dinner together in Mr. Lightwood's office. They had newly agreed to set up a joint establishment together. They had taken a bachelor cottage near Hampton, on the brink of the Thames, with a lawn and a house, and all things fitting, and were to float with the stream through the summer and the long vacation it was not summer yet but spring and it was not gentle spring ethereally mild as in thomson's seasons but nipping spring with an easterly wind as in johnson's jackson's dixon's smith's and jones's seasons the grating wind soared rather than blew, and as it soared the sawdust whirled about the saw-pit every street was a saw-pit and there were no top sawyers every passenger was an under sawyer with the sawdust blinding him and choking him. That mysterious paper currency, which circulates in London when the wind blows, gyrated here and there and everywhere. Whence can it come? Whither can it go? It hangs on every bush, flutters in every tree, is caught flying by the electric wires, haunts every enclosure, drinks at every pump, cowers at every grating, shudders upon every plot of grass, seeks rest in vain behind the legions of iron rails. In Paris, where nothing is wasted, costly and luxurious city though it be, but where wonderful human ants creep out of holes, and pick up every scrap, there is no such thing. There it blows nothing but dust. There sharp eyes and sharp stomachs reap even the east wind, and get something out of it. The wind soared, and the sawdust whirled. The shrubs wrung their many hands, bemoaning that they had been over-persuaded by the sun to bud. The young leaves pined, the sparrows repented of their early marriages, like men and women. The colours of the rainbow were discernible, not in floral spring, but in the faces of the people whom it nibbled and pinched, and ever the wind soared, and the sawdust whirled. When the spring evenings are too long and light to shut out, and such weather is rife, the city which Mr. Podsnap so explanatory called, London, Londres, London, is at its worst. "'such a black, shrill city, combining the qualities of a smoky house and a scolding wife. "'Such a gritty city, such a hopeless city, with no rent in the leaden canopy of its sky, "'such a beleaguered city, invested by the great marsh forces of Essex and Kent. "'So the two old schoolfellows felt it to be, as, their dinner done, they turned towards the fire to smoke. "'Young Blight was gone, the coffee-house waiter was gone, the plates and dishes were gone, the wine was going.' but not in the same direction. "'The wind sounds up here,' "'quoth Eugene, stirring the fire, "'as if we were keeping a lighthouse. "'I wish we were. "'Don't you think it would bore us?' Lightwood asked. "'Not more than any other place, "'and there would be no circuit to go. "'But that's a selfish consideration, "'personal to me. "'And no clients to come.' "'added Lightwood. "'Not that that's a selfish consideration at all personal to me.' "'If we were on an isolated rock in a stormy sea,' said Eugene, smoking with his eyes on the fire, "'Lady Tippins couldn't put off to visit us, or, better still, might put off and get swamped. People couldn't ask one to wedding-breakfasts. There would be no precedents to hammer-at.' except the plain-sailing precedent of keeping the light up. It would be exciting to look out for wrecks. But otherwise, suggested Lightwood, there might be a degree of sameness in the life. I have thought of that also," said Eugene, as if he really had been considering the subject in its various bearings, with an eye to the business. But it would be a defined and limited monotony." It would not extend beyond two people. Now, it's a question with me, Mortimer, whether a monotony defined with that precision, limited to that extent, might not be more endurable than the unlimited monotony of one's fellow creatures. As Lightwood laughed, and passed the wine, he remarked, "'We shall have an opportunity in our boating summer of trying the question.' "'An imperfect one,' Eugene acquiesced with a sigh. "'But so we shall. "'I hope we may not prove too much for one another. "'Now, regarding your respected father,' said Lightwood, "'bringing him to a subject they had expressly appointed to discuss, "'always the most slippery eel of eels of subjects to lay hold of. "'Yes, regarding my respected father.' assented Eugene, settling himself in his arm-chair. "'I would rather have approached my respected father by candlelight, as a theme requiring a little artificial brilliancy, but we will take him by twilight,' enlivened with the glow of Wall's End. He stirred the fire again as he spoke, and having made it blaze, resumed. "'My respected father has found, down in the parental neighbourhood, a wife for his not-generally-respected son. With some money, of course—with some money, of course, or he would not have found her—my respected father, let me shorten the dutiful tautology by substituting in future M.R.F., which sounds military, and rather like the Duke of Wellington.' "'What an absurd fellow you are, Eugene!' "'Not at all, I assure you. M. R. F. having always, in the clearest manner, provided, as he calls it, for his children, "'by prearranging from the hour of the birth of each, and sometimes from an earlier period, "'what the devoted little victim's calling and course in life should be. R. prearranged for myself that I was to be the barrister.' I am, with the slight addition of an enormous practice which has not accrued, and also the married man I am not. The first you have often told me. The first I have often told you. Considering myself sufficiently incongruous on my legal eminence, I have until now suppressed my domestic destiny. You know MRF, but not as well as I do.' if you knew him as well as I do, he would amuse you. Filially spoken, Eugene. Perfectly so, believe me, and with every sentiment of affectionate deference towards M.R.F. But if he amuses me, I can't help it. When my eldest brother was born, of course, the rest of us knew— I mean, the rest of us would have known, if we had been in existence, that he was heir to the family embarrassments. We call it before the company the family estate. But when my second brother was going to be born by and by, this, says M.R.F., is a little pillar of the church. Was born, and became a pillar of the church. A very shaky one. My third brother appeared, considerably in advance of his engagement to my mother, but M. R. F., not at all put out by surprise, instantly declared him a circumnavigator. Was pitchforked into the Navy, but has not circumnavigated. I announced myself, and was disposed of with the highly satisfactory results embodied before you. When my younger brother was half an hour old, it was settled by M. R. F., "'that he should have a mechanical genius, and so on. "'Therefore I say that M.R.F. amuses me. "'Touching the lady, Eugene? "'There M.R.F. ceases to be amusing, "'because my intentions are opposed to touching the lady. "'Do you know her?' "'Not in the least. "'Hadn't you better see her?' "'My dear Mortimer,' You have studied my character. Could I possibly go down there, labelled, eligible, on view, and meet the lady similarly labelled? Anything to carry out M. R. F.'s arrangements, I am sure, with the greatest pleasure, except matrimony. Could I possibly support it? I, so soon bored, so constantly, so fatally? But you are not a consistent fellow, Eugene. In susceptibility to boredom, returned that worthy, I assure you I am the most consistent of mankind. Why, it was but now that you were dwelling in the advantages of a monotony of two. In a lighthouse. Do me the justice to remember the condition. In a lighthouse. Mortimer laughed again, and Eugene having laughed too for the first time, as if he found himself on reflection rather entertaining, relapsed into his usual gloom, and drowsily said, as he enjoyed his cigar, No, there is no help for it. One of the prophetic deliveries of M. R. F. must for ever remain unfulfilled. With every disposition to oblige him, he must submit to a failure. It had grown darker as they talked and the wind was sawing, and the sawdust was whirling outside paler windows. The underlying churchyard was already settling into deep, dim shade, and the shade was creeping up to the housetops, among which they sat. "'As if,' said Eugene, "'as if the churchyard ghosts were rising.' He had walked to the window, with his cigar in his mouth, to exalt its flavour, by comparing the fireside with the outside when he stopped midway on his return to his arm-chair, and said, "'Apparently one of the ghosts has lost its way, and dropped in to be directed. Look at this phantom!' Lightwood, whose back was towards the door, turned his head, and there, in the darkness of the entry, stood a something in the likeness of a man, to whom he addressed the not irrelevant inquiry, "'Who the devil are you?' "'I ask your pardons, governess.' replied the ghost, in a hoarse, double-barrelled whisper. But might either on you be lawyer Lightwood? What do you mean by not knocking at the door? demanded Mortimer. I ask your pardons, governors, replied the ghost, as before. But probable you was not aware your door stood open. What do you want? Hereunto the ghost again hoarsely replied, in its double-barrelled manner, i ask your pardons governors but might one on you be loyal i would one of us is said the owner of that name all right governors both returned the ghost carefully closing the room door tickler business mortimer lighted the candles they showed the visitor to be an ill-looking visitor with a squinting leer who as he spoke fumbled at an old sodden fur cap formless and mangy, that looked like a furry animal, dog or cat, puppy or kitten, drowned and decaying. "'Now,' said Mortimer, "'what is it?' "'Governors both,' returned the man, in what he meant to be a wheedling tone, "'which on you might be lawyer Lightwood?' "'I am—' "'Lawyer Lightwood,' ducking at him with a servile air. "'I am a man as gets my living, and as seeks to get my living, by sweat of my brow. Not to risk being done out of the sweat of my brow, by any chances, I should wish a foregoing further to be swore in.' "'I am not a swearer-in of people, man.' The visitor, clearly anything but reliant on this assurance, doggedly muttered, "'Alfred David.' "'Is that your name?' asked Lightwood.
0: "'My
1: name?' returned the man.
0: "'No.'
1: "'I want to take a affidavit,' which Eugene, smoking and contemplating him, interpreted as meaning affidavit. "'I tell you, my good fellow,' said Lightwood, with his indolent laugh, "'that I have nothing to do with swearing.' "'He can swear at you,' Eugene explained, "'and so can I, but we can't do more for you.' Much discomforted by this information, The visitor turned the drowned dog or cat, puppy or kitten, about and about, and looked from one of the governor's both, to the other of the governor's both, while he deeply considered within himself. At length he decided, "'Then I must be took down.' "'Where?' asked Lightwood. "'Here,' said the man. "'In pen and ink.' First, let us know what your business is about.' "'It's about?' said the man, taking a step forward, dropping his hoarse voice, and shading it with his hand. "'It's about from five to ten thousand-pound reward. That's what it's about. It's about murder. That's what it's about. Come near the table. Sit down. Will you have a glass of wine?' "'Yes, I will,' said the man. "'And I don't deceive you, governors.' It was given him. Making a stiff arm to the elbow, he poured the wine into his mouth. Tilted it into his right cheek, as saying, "'What do you think of it?' Tilted it into his left cheek, as saying, "'What do you think of it?' Jerked it into his stomach, as saying, "'What do you think of it?' To conclude, smacked his lips, as if all three replied, "'We think well of it.' "'Will you have another?' "'Yes, I will,' he repeated. "'And I don't deceive you, governess,' and also repeated the other proceedings. "'Now,' began Lightwood. What's your name?" "'Why,
0: there you're rather
1: fast, Lawyer Lightwood,' he replied in a remonstrant manner. "'Don't you see, Lawyer Lightwood? There you're a little bit fast. I'm going to earn for five to ten thousand pounds by the sweat of my brow, and as a poor man doing justice to the sweat of my brow, is it likely I can afford to part with so much as my name, without its being took down?' Referring to the man's sense of the binding powers of pen and ink and paper, Lightwood nodded acceptance of Eugene's nodded proposal to take those spells in hand. Eugene, bringing them to the table, sat down as clerk or notary. "'Now,' said Lightwood, "'what's your name?' But further precaution was still due to the sweat of this honest fellow's brow. "'I should wish, lawyer Lightwood.' he stipulated to have that t'othered governor is my witness that what i said i said consequent will the tethered governor be so good as to chuck me his name and where he lives eugene cigar in mouth and pen in hand tossed him his card after spelling it out slowly the man made it into a little roll and tied it up in an end of his neckerchief still more slowly now said lightwood for the third time if you have quite completed your various preparations, my friend, and have fully ascertained that your spirits are cool and not in any way hurried, what's your name, Roger Riderhood, dwelling place, Soul calling or occupation? Not quite so glib with this answer as with the previous two, Mr. Riderhood gave in the definition. What a side character. Anything against you, Eugene? Quietly put in as he wrote. Rather balked, Mister Riderhood evasively remarked with an innocent air that he believed the t'other governor had asked him summit. Ever in trouble, said Eugene. Once, might happen to any man, Mister Riderhood added incidentally. On suspicion of, of, seaman's pocket said Mr Riderhood, whereby I was in reality the man's best friend and tried to take care of him. And with the sweat of your brow? asked Eugene. Till it poured down like rain, said Roger Riderhood. Eugene leaned back in his chair and smoked with his eyes negligently turned on the informer and his pen ready to reduce him to more writing. Lightwood also smoked with his eyes negligently turned on the informer. Now, "'Let me be took down again,' said Riderhood, when he had turned the drowned cap over and under, and had brushed it the wrong way, if it had a right way, with his sleeve. "'I give information that the man that done the and murder is Gaffer Exum, the man that found the body. The hand of Jesse Exum, commonly called Gaffer on the river and along is the hand that done that deed—his hand, and no other.' The two friends glanced at one another, with more serious faces than they had shown yet. "'Tell us on what grounds you make this accusation,' said Mortimer Lightwood. "'On the grounds,' answered Riderhood, wiping his face with his sleeve, "'that I was Gaffer's pardner, and suspected of him many a long day, and many a dark night. "'On the grounds that I knowed his ways.' On the grounds that I broke the partnership because I see the danger, which I warn you, his daughter may tell you another story about that, for anything I can say, but you know what it'll be worth, for she tell you lies the world round and the heavens broad to save her father. On the grounds that it's well understood along the causeways and the stairs that he done it. On the grounds that he's fell off from because he done it. On the grounds that I'll swear he done it. On the grounds that you may take me where you will and get me sworn to it. I don't want to back out of the consequences. I've made up my mind. Take me anywheres. All this is nothing, said Lightwood. Nothing? repeated Riderhood indignantly and amazedly. Merely nothing. It goes to no more than that you suspect this man of the crime. "'You may do so with some reason, or you may do so with no reason, but he cannot be convicted on your suspicion. Haven't I said—'I appeal to the t'other governor as my witness. Haven't I said, from the first minute that I opened my mouth in this here world without end everlasting everlasting chair—'he evidently used that form of words as next in force to an affidavit—'that I was willing to swear that he done it. Haven't I said—' take me, and get me sworn to it. Don't I say so now? You won't deny it, Lawyer Lightwood.' "'Surely not. But you only offer to swear to your suspicion, and I tell you it is not enough to swear to your suspicion.' "'Not enough, ain't it, Lawyer Lightwood?' he cautiously demanded. "'Positively not.' And did I say it was enough? Now, I appealed to the t'other governor. Now, fair? Did I say so? He certainly has not said that he had no more to tell, Eugene observed, in a low voice, without looking at him, whatever he seemed to imply. Ha! cried the informer triumphantly, perceiving that the remark was generally in his favour, though apparently not closely understanding it. Fortunate for me, I had a witness. "'Go on, then,' said Lightwood. "'Say out what you have to say. No afterthought.' "'Let me be took down, then,' cried the informer, eagerly and anxiously. "'Let me be took down, for by George and the dragon I am a-coming to it now. Don't do nothing to keep back from a honest man the fruits of the sweat of his brow. I give information, then, that he told me that he done it. Is that enough?' "'Take care what you say, my friend.' returned Mortimer. Lawyer Lightwood, take care you what I say, for I judge you'll be answerable for following it up. Then, slowly and emphatically, beating it all out with his open right hand on the palm of his left I Roger Riderhood "'Limus Soul Waterside character tell you, lawyer Lightwood, that the man Jesse Exum commonly called upon the river and along shore gaffer, told me that he done the deed. What's more, he told me with his own lips that he done the deed. What's more, he said that he done the deed. And I'll swear it. Where did he tell you so? Outside, outside replied Riderhood always beating it out with his head, determinedly set askew, and his eyes watchfully dividing their attention between his two auditors. "'Outside the door of the six jolly fellowships, towards a quarter after twelve at midnight, but I will not in my conscience undertake to swear to so fine a matter as five minutes, on the night when he picked up the body. The six jolly fellowships won't run away. If it turns out that he warn't the six jolly fellowships that night at midnight, I'm a liar.' What did he say? "'I'll tell you. Take me down to the governor, ask no better. He come out first, I come out last. I might be a minute arter him, I might be half a minute, I might be a quarter of a minute. I can't swear to that, and therefore I won't. That's knowing the obligations of an Alfred David, ain't it? Go on. I found him, and waiting to speak to me. He says to me, rogue riderhood. For that's the name I'm mostly called by, not for any meaning in it, for meaning it has none, but because of its being similar to Roger. Never mind that. Excuse me, Lawyer Lightwood. It's a part of the truth, and as such, I do mind it, and I must mind it, and I will mind it. Rogue Riderhood, he says. Words passed betwixt us on the river tonight, which they had. Ask his daughter. "'I threatened you,' he says, "'to chop you over the fingers with my boat's stretcher, "'or take a aim at your brains with my boat-hook. "'I did so on accounts of your looking too hard at what I had in tow, "'as if you were suspicious, "'and on accounts of your holding on to the gunnel of my boat. "'I says to him, "'Gaffer, I know it. "'He says to me, "'Rogue Riderhood, you are a man in a dozen.' "'I think he said, in a score.' But that I'm not positive, so take the lowest figure, for precious be the obligations of Alfred David. And, he says, when your fellow-men is up, be it their lives or be it their watches, sharp is ever the word with you, had you suspicions? I says, gaffer, I had, and what's more, I have. He falls a-shaking, and he says, of what? I says, of foul play. "'He falls a-shaking worse, and he says, "'There was foul play then. "'I done it for his money. "'Don't betray me. "'Those were the words, as ever he used.'" There was a silence, broken only by the fall of the ashes in the grate, an opportunity which the informer improved by smearing himself all over the head and neck and face with his drowned cap, and not at all improving his own appearance. "'What more?' asked Lightwood. "'Of him, do you mean, Lawyer Lightwood?' "'Of anything to the purpose.' "'Now, I'm blessed if I understand you, governors, both,' said the informer, in a creeping manner, propitiating both, the only one had spoken. "'What? Ain't that enough?' "'Did you ask him how he did it, where he did it, when he did it?' "'Far be it from me, Lawyer Lightwood.' I was so troubled in me mind that I wouldn't have knowed more. No, not for the sum as I expect to earn from you, by the sweat of me brow, twice told. I put an end to the partnership. I had cut the connection. I couldn't undo what was done, and when he begs and prays, Old pardner, on my knees, don't split upon me, I only makes answer never speak another word to roger riderhood nor look him in the face and i shuns that man having given these words a swing to make them mount the higher and go the further rogue riderhood poured himself out another glass of wine unbidden and seemed to chew it as with the half empty glass in his hand he stared at the candles mortimer glanced at eugene but eugene sat glowering at his paper and would give him no responsive glance Mortimer again turned to the informer, to whom he said, "'You have been troubled in your mind a long-time man.' Giving his wine a final chew, and swallowing it, the informer answered in a single word, "'Hages!' "'When all that stir was made, when the government reward was offered, when the police were on the alert, when the whole country rang with the crime,' said Mortimer impatiently, "Ha." Oh, said Mr. Riderhood, very slowly and hoarsely chimed in, with several retrospective nods of his head. One not I troubled in my mind, then?' "'When conjecture ran wild, and the most extravagant suspicions were afloat, when half a dozen innocent people might have been laid by the heels any hour in the day,' said Mortimer, almost warming. "'Ah!' Mr. Riderhood chimed in, as before war not I troubled in my mind through it all?' "'But he hadn't,' said Eugene, drawing a lady's head upon his writing-paper, and touching it at intervals, "'the opportunity, then, of earning so much money, you see.' "'The t'other governates the nail, lawyer Lightwood. It was that as turned me. I'd many times and again struggled to relieve myself of the trouble on my mind, but I couldn't get it off. I'd once, very nigh, nice, got it off to Miss Abbey Potterson, which keeps the six jolly fellowships. There is the house. It won't run away. Here lives the lady. She ain't likely to be struck dead afore you get there. Ask her. But I couldn't do it. At last, out comes the new bill with your own lawful name, Lawyer Lightwood, printed to it. And then I ask the question of my own intellects. Am I to have this trouble on my mind for ever? Am I never to throw it off? Am I always to think more of Gaffer than of me own self? If he's got a daughter, ain't I got a daughter?' And Echo answered, Eugene suggested, "'You have?' said Mr. Riderhood in a firm tone. Incidentally mentioning at the same time her age, inquired Eugene. Yes, Governor, two-and-twenty last October. And I put it to myself, regarding the money, it is a pot of money. For it is a pot, said Mr. Riderhood with candour, and why deny it? Here, from Eugene as he touched his drawing, it is a pot of money, but is it a sin for a labouring man that moistens every crust of bread he earns with his tears, or, if not with them, with the colds he catches in his head, is it a sin for that man to earn it? Say, there is anything again earning it? This I put to myself strong, as in duty bound. How can it be said without blaming lawyer Lightwood for offering it to be earned? And was it for me to blame lawyer Lightwood? "'No! No!' said Eugene. "'Certainly not, Gufta!' Mr. Riderhood acquiesced. "'So, I made up my mind to get me trouble off me mind, and to earn by the sweat of me brow what was held out to me. And what's more,' he added, suddenly turning bloodthirsty, "'I mean to have it. And now I tell you, once in a way, lawyer Lightwood, that Jesse Exum, commonly called gaffer, his hand, and no other, done the deed, on his own confession to me, and I give him up to you, and I want him took this night.' After another silence, broken only by the fall of the ashes in the grate, which attracted the informer's attention as if it were the chinking of money, Mortimer Lightwood leaned over his friend, and said in a whisper, "'I suppose I must go with this fellow to our imperturbable friend at the police-station.' i suppose said eugene there is no help for it do you believe him i believe him to be a thorough rascal but he may tell the truth for his own purpose and for this occasion only he doesn't look like it he doesn't said eugene but neither is his late partner whom he denounces a prepossessing person the firm are cutthroat shepherds both in appearance I should like to ask him one thing." The subject of this conference sat leering at the ashes, trying with all his might to overhear what was said, but feigning abstraction as the governors both glanced at him. "'You mention—twice, I think—a daughter of this Hexams," said Eugene aloud. "'You don't mean to imply that she had any guilty knowledge of the crime?' The honest man, after considering—perhaps considering how his answer might affect the fruits of the sweat of his brow—replied unreservedly, "'No, I don't.' "'And you implicate no other person?' "'It ain't what I implicate, it's what Gaffer implicated,' was the dogged, determined answer.
0: "'I don't
1: pretend to know more than that his words to me was. I done it. Those were his words.' i must see this out mortimer whispered eugene rising how shall we go let us walk whispered lightwood and give this fellow time to think of it having exchanged the question and answer they prepared themselves for going out and mr riderhood rose while extinguishing the candles lightwood quite as a matter of course took up the glass from which that honest gentleman had drunk and coolly tossed it under the grate where it fell shivering into fragments "'Now, if you'll take the lead,' said Lightwood, "'Mr. Rayburn and I will follow. "'You know where to go, I suppose?' "'I suppose I do, lawyer Lightwood.' "'Take the lead, then.' The waterside character pulled his drowned cap over his ears with both hands, and, making himself more round-shouldered than nature had made him, by the sullen and persistent slouch with which he went, went down the stairs, round by the temple church, across the temple into Whitefriars, and so on by the waterside streets. Look at his hang dog air, said Lightwood, following. It strikes me rather as a hangman air, returned Eugene. He has undeniable intentions that way. They said little else as they followed. He went on before them as an ugly fate might have done, and they kept him in view, and would have been glad enough to lose sight of him but on he went before them, always at the same distance and the same rate. Aslant against the hard implacable weather and the rough wind, he was no more to be driven back than hurried forward, but held on like an advancing destiny. There came, when they were about midway on their journey, a heavy rush of hail, which in a few minutes pelted the streets clear and whitened them. It made no difference to him. A man's life being to be taken, and the price of it got. The hailstones to arrest the purpose must lie larger and deeper than those. He crushed through them, leaving marks in the fast-melting slush that were mere shapeless holes one might have fancied following that the very fashion of humanity had departed from his feet. The blast went by, and the moon contended with the fast-flying clouds, and the wild disorder reigning up there made the pitiful little tumults in the street of no account. It was not that the wind swept all the brawlers into places of shelter, as it had swept the hail still lingering in heaps, wherever there was refuge for it, but that it seemed as if the streets were absorbed by the sky, and the night were all in the air. "'If he has had time to think of it,' said Eugene, "'he has not had time to think better of it, or differently of it, if that's better. There is no sign of drawing back in him.' And as I recollect this place, we must be close upon the corner where we alighted that night. In fact, a few abrupt turns brought them to the riverside, where they had slipped about among the stones, and where they now slipped more, the wind coming against them in slants and flaws across the tide and the windings of the river, in a furious way with that habit of getting under the lee of any shelter which waterside characters acquire the waterside character at present in question led the way to the lee side of the six jolly fellowship porters before he spoke look round here lawyer lightwood at them rent curtains it's the fellowships the houses i told you wouldn't run away and has it run away not showing himself much impressed by this remarkable confirmation of the informer's evidence Lightwood inquired what other business they had there. "'I wish you to see the fellowship for yourself, lawyer Lightwood, that you might judge whether I'm a liar. And now I'll see Gaffer's window for myself, that we may know whether he's at home.' With that, he crept away. "'He'll come back, I suppose,' murmured Lightwood. "'Aye, and go through with it,' murmured Eugene. He came back after a very short interval indeed. Gaffer's out. His boat's out. His daughter's at home, sitting and looking at the fire. But there's some supper getting ready, so Gaffer's expected. I can find what movie's upon easy enough presently. Then he beckoned and led the way again, and they came to the police-station, still as clean and cool and steady as before, saving that the flame of its lamp, being but a lamp-flame, and only attached to the force as an outsider, flickered in the wind. Also within doors, Mr. Inspector was at his studies as of yore. He recognised the friends the instant they reappeared, but their reappearance had no effect on his composure. Not even the circumstance that riderhood was their conductor moved him. Otherwise than that, as he took a dip of ink, he seemed, by a settlement of his chin in his stock, to propound to that personage, without looking at him, THE QUESTION, WHAT HAVE YOU BEEN UP TO LAST? Mortimer Lightwood asked him, would he be so good as to look at those notes, handing him Eugene's. Having read the first few lines, Mr. Inspector mounted to that, for him, extraordinary pitch of emotion, that he said, "'Does either of you gentlemen happen to have a pinch of snuff about him?' Finding that neither had, he did quite as well without it, and read on. "'Have you heard these read?' he then demanded of the honest man. No, said Riderhood. Then you had better hear them. And so read them aloud in an official manner. Are these notes correct now as to the information you bring here and the evidence you mean to give? he asked, when he had finished reading. They are they are as correct, returned Mr Riderhood, as I am I can't say more than that for him. I'll take this man myself, sir, said Mr Inspector to Lightwood, then to Riderhood. Is he at home? Where is he? What's he doing? You have made it your business to know all about him, no doubt. Riderhood said what he did know, and promised to find out in a few minutes what he didn't know. Stop! said Mr Inspector. Not till I tell you. We mustn't look like business would you two gentlemen object to making a pretence of taking a glass of something in my company at the fellowships well conducted house an highly respectable landlady they replied that they would be happy to substitute a reality for the pretence which in the main appeared to be as one with mr inspector's meaning very good said he taking his hat from its peg and putting a pair of handcuffs in his pocket as if they were his gloves reserve reserve saluted "'You know where to find me?' Reserve again saluted. "'Riderhood, when you have found out concerning his coming home, come round to the window of Cozy. Tap twice at it, and wait for me. Now, gentlemen!' As the three went out together, and Riderhood slouched off from under the trembling lamp his separate way, Lightwood asked the officer what he thought of this. Mr. Inspector replied, with due generality and reticence, that it was always more likely that a man had done a bad thing than that he hadn't, that he himself had several times reckoned up Gaffer, but had never been able to bring him to a satisfactory criminal total, that if this story was true, it was only in part true, that the two men, very shy characters, would have been jointly and pretty equally in it, but that this man had spotted the other to save himself and get the money. "'And I think,' added Mr. Inspector, in conclusion, "'that if all goes well with him, he's in a tolerable way of getting it. "'But, as this is the fellowships, gentlemen, where the lights are, "'I recommend dropping the subject. "'You can't do better than be interested in some lime-works "'anywhere down about North Fleet, "'and doubtful whether some of your lime don't get into bad company "'as it comes up in barges.' "'You hear, Eugene?' said Lightwood over his shoulder. You are deeply interested in lime. Without lime, returned that unmoved barrister at law, my existence would be unilluminated by a ray of hope. End of Book One Chapter Twelve Book One, Chapter Thirteen of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book One, The Cup and the Lip, Chapter Thirteen: Tracking the Bird of Prey. The two lime merchants, with their escort, entered the dominions of Miss Abbey Potterson, to whom their escort presenting them and their pretended business over the half-door of the bar in a confidential way, preferred his figurative request that a mouthful of fire might be lighted in cosy. Always well disposed to assist the constituted authorities, Miss Abbey bade Bob Gliddery attend the gentleman to that retreat, and promptly enliven it with fire and gaslight. Of this commission the bare-armed Bob, leading the way with a flaming wisp of paper, so speedily acquitted himself, that Cozy seemed to leap out of a dark sleep, and embrace them warmly, the moment they passed the lintels of its hospitable door. "'They burn sherry very well here,' said Mr. Inspector, as a piece of local intelligence. "'Perhaps you gentlemen might like a bottle?' The answer being, by all means—' Bob Gliddery received his instructions from Mr. Inspector, and departed in a becoming state of alacrity engendered by reverence for the majesty of the law. "'It's a certain fact,' said Mr. Inspector, "'that this man we have received our information from,' indicating Riderhood with his thumb over his shoulder, "'has for some time past given the other man a bad name, arising out of your lime-barges,' "'Not the other man has been avoided, in consequence. "'I don't say what it means, or proves, "'but it's a certain fact. "'I had it first from one of the opposite sex of my acquaintance.' "'Vaguely indicating Miss Abbey with his thumb over his shoulder. "'Down away at a distance, over yonder. "'Then probably Mr. Inspector was not quite unprepared "'for their visit that evening,' Lightwood hinted. "'Well, you see,' said Mr. Inspector. "'It was a question of making a move. It's of no use moving, if you don't know what your move is. You had better by far keep still. In the matter of this lime, I certainly had an idea that it might lie betwixt the two men. I always had that idea. Still, I was forced to wait for a start, and I wasn't so lucky as to get a start. This man that we have received our information from "'has got a start, and if he don't meet with a cheque, "'he may make the running and come in first. "'There may turn out to be something considerable for him "'that comes in second, and I don't mention who may "'or who may not try for that place. "'There's duty to do, and I shall do it, "'under any circumstances, to the best of my judgment and ability.' "'Speaking as a shipper of lime,' "'began Eugene. "'Which no man has a better right to do than yourself, you know,' said Mr. Inspector. "'I hope not,' said Eugene. "'My father, having been a shipper of lime before me, and my grandfather before him—in fact, we having been a family immersed to the crowns of our heads in lime during several generations—' I beg to observe that if this missing lime could be got hold of without any young female relative of any distinguished gentleman engaged in the lime trade, which I cherish next to my life, being present, I think it might be a more agreeable proceeding to the assisting bystanders, that is to say, lime-burners. I also... "'said Lightwood, pushing his friend aside with a laugh. "'Should much prefer that.' "'It shall be done, gentlemen, if it can be done conveniently,' "'said Mr. Inspector, with coolness. "'There is no wish on my part to cause any distress in that quarter. "'Indeed, I am sorry for that quarter.' "'There was a boy in that quarter,' remarked Eugene. "'He is still there?' "'No.' said Mr. Inspector. He has quitted those works he is otherwise disposed of. "'Will she be left alone, then?' asked Eugene. "'She will be left,' said Mr. Inspector, alone. Bob's reappearance of the steaming jug broke off the conversation but although the jug steamed forth a delicious perfume its contents had not received that last happy touch which the surpassing finish of the six jolly fellowship porters imparted on such momentous occasions bob carried in his left hand one of those iron models of sugar-loaf hats before mentioned into which he emptied the jug and the pointed end of which he thrust deep down into the fire so leaving it for a few moments, while he disappeared, and reappeared with three bright drinking-glasses. Placing these on the table, and bending over the fire, meritoriously sensible of the trying nature of his duty, he watched the wreaths of steam, until, at the special instant of projection, he caught up the iron vessel, and gave it one delicate twirl, causing it to send forth one gentle hiss. Then he restored the contents to the jug held over the steam of the jug, each of the three bright glasses in succession, finally filled them all, and with a clear conscience awaited the applause of his fellow-creatures. It was bestowed, Mr. Inspector having proposed as an appropriate sentiment, the lime-trade, and Bob withdrew to report the commendations of the guests to Miss Abbey in the bar. It may be here in confidence admitted that, the room being close shut in his absence, there had not appeared to be the slightest reason for the elaborate maintenance of this same lime fiction, only it had been regarded by Mr. Inspector as so uncommonly satisfactory, and so fraught with mysterious virtues, that neither of his clients had presumed to question it. Two taps were now heard at the outside of the window. Mr. Inspector, hastily fortifying himself with another glass, strolled out with a noiseless foot and an unoccupied countenance, as one might go to survey the weather, and the general aspect of the heavenly bodies. "'This is becoming grim, Mortimer,' said Eugene, in a low voice. "'I don't like this.' "'Nor I,' said Lightwood. "'Shall we go?' "'Being here, let us stay. "'You ought to see it out, and I won't leave you.' Besides, that lonely girl with the dark hair runs in my head. It was little more than a glimpse we had of her that last time, and yet I almost see her waiting by the fire to-night. Do you feel like a dark combination of traitor and pickpocket, when you think of that girl? Rather, returned Lightwood, do you? Very much so. Their escort strolled back again, and reported— divested of its various limelights and shadows his report went to the effect that gaffer was away in his boat supposed to be on his old lookout that he had been expected last high water that having missed it for some reason or other he was not according to his usual habits at night to be counted on before next high water or it might be an hour or so later that his daughter surveyed through the window which seemed to be so expecting him for the supper was not cooking but set out ready to be cooked that it would be high water at about one, and that it was now barely ten, that there was nothing to be done but watch and wait, that the informer was keeping watch at the instant of that present reporting, but the two heads were better than one, especially when the second was Mr. Inspector's, and that the reporter meant to share the watch. And forasmuch as crouching under the lee of a hauled-up boat on a night, when it blew cold and strong, and when the weather was varied with blasts of hail at times, might be wearisome to amateurs, the reporter closed with the recommendation that the two gentlemen should remain, for a while at any rate, in their present quarters, which were weather-tight and warm. They were not inclined to dispute this recommendation, but they wanted to know where they could join the watchers when so disposed. Rather than trust to a verbal description of the place, which might mislead, Eugene, with a less weighty sense of personal trouble on him than he usually had, would go out with Mr. Inspector, note the spot, and come back. On the shelving bank of the river, among the slimy stones of a causeway, not the special causeway of the six jolly fellowships, which had a landing-place of its own, but another, a little removed, and very near to the old windmill which was the denounced man's dwelling-place, were a few boats, some moored and already beginning to float, others hauled up above the reach of the tide. Under one of these latter, Eugene's companion disappeared, and when Eugene had observed its position, with reference to the other boats, and had made sure that he could not miss it, he turned his eyes upon the building where, as he had been told, the lonely girl with the dark hair sat by the fire. He could see the light of the fire shining through the window. Perhaps it drew him on to look in, Perhaps he had come out with the express intention. That part of the bank, having rank grass growing on it, there was no difficulty in getting close, without any noise of footsteps. It was but to scramble up a ragged face of pretty hard mud, some three or four feet high, and come upon the grass, and to the window. He came to the window, by that means. She had no other light than the light of the fire. The unkindled lamp stood on the table. She sat on the ground, looking at the brazier, with her face leaning on her hand. There was a kind of film or flicker on her face, which at first he took to be the fitful firelight, but on a second look he saw that she was weeping. A sad and solitary spectacle, as shown him by the rising and the falling of the fire. It was a little window, of but four pieces of glass, and was not curtained. He chose it because the larger window near it was— It showed him the room, and the bills upon the wall respecting the drowned people starting out and receding by turns, but he glanced slightly at them, though he looked long and steadily at her. A deep rich piece of colour, with the brown flush of her cheek, and the shining luster of her hair, though sad and solitary, weeping by the rising and the falling of the fire. She started up. He had been so very still that he felt sure it was not he who had disturbed her so merely withdrew from the window and stood near it in the shadow of the wall she opened the door and said in an alarmed tone father was that you calling me and again father and once again after listening father i thought i heard you call me twice before no response as she re-entered at the door he dropped over the bank and made his way back among the ooze and near the hiding-place to Mortimer Lightwood, to whom he told what he had seen of the girl, and how this was becoming very grim indeed. "'If the real man feels as guilty as I do,' said Eugene, "'he is remarkably uncomfortable.' "'Influence of secrecy,' suggested Lightwood. "'I am not at all obliged to it, for making me Guy Fawkes in the vault, and a sneak in the area, both at once,' said Eugene." Give me some more of that stuff. Lightwood helping him to some more of that stuff, but it had been cooling, and didn't answer now. phew <clears throat> said Eugene, spitting it out among the ashes. Tastes like the wash of the river. Are you so familiar with the flavour of the wash of the river? I seem to be to-night. I feel as if I had been half drowned, and swallowing a gallon of it. "'Influence of locality,' suggested Lightwood. "'You are mighty learned to-night, you and your influences,' returned Eugene. "'How long shall we stay here?' "'How long, do you think?' "'If I could choose, I should say a minute,' replied Eugene. "'For the jolly fellowship porters are not the jolliest dogs I have known.' "'but I suppose we are best here until they turn us out with the other suspicious characters at midnight.' Thereupon he stirred the fire, and sat down on one side of it. It struck eleven, and he made believe to compose himself patiently. But gradually he took the fidgets in one leg, and then in the other leg, and then in one arm, and then in the other arm, and then in his chin— and then in his back, and then in his forehead, and then in his hair, and then in his nose, and then he stretched himself, recumbent on two chairs, and groaned, and then he started up. Invisible insects of diabolical activity swarm in this place. I am tickled and twitched all over. Mentally, I have now committed a burglary, under the meanest circumstances, and the myrmidons of justice are at my heels.' "'I am quite as bad,' said Lightwood, sitting up facing him with a tumbled head, after going through some wonderful evolutions, in which his head had been the lowest part of him. "'This restlessness began with me long ago. All the time you were out, I felt like Gulliver with the Lilliputians firing upon him.' "'It won't do, Mortimer. We must get into the air. We must join our dear friend and brother, Riderhood and let us tranquilize ourselves by making a compact. Next time, with a view to our peace of mind, we'll commit the crime instead of taking the criminal. You swear it? Certainly. Sworn. Let Tippins look to it. Her life's in danger. Mortimer rang the bell to pay the score, and Bob appeared to transact that business with him whom Eugene, in his careless extravagance, asked if he would like a situation in the lime-trade. "'Thank ye, sir. No, sir,' said Bob. "'I've got a good situation here, sir.' "'If you change your mind at any time,' returned Eugene, "'come to me at my works, and you'll always find an opening in the lime-kiln.' "'Thank ye, sir,' said Bob. "'This is my partner.' said Eugene, who keeps the books, and attends to the wages. A fair day's wages for a fair day's work, is ever my partner's motto. "'And a very good un is gentlemen,' said Bob, receiving his fee, and drawing a bow out of his head with his right hand, very much as he would have drawn a pint of beer out of the beer-engine. "'Eugene,' Mortimer apostrophized him, laughing quite heartily, when they were alone again, "'how can you be so ridiculous?' "'I am in a ridiculous humour,' quoth Eugene. "'I am a ridiculous fellow. Everything is ridiculous. Come along.' It passed into Mortimer Lightwood's mind that a change of some sort, best expressed perhaps as an intensification of all that was wildest and most negligent and reckless in his friend, had come upon him in the last half-hour or so. Thoroughly used to him as he was, he found something new and strained in him that was for the moment perplexing. This passed into his mind, and passed out again. But he remembered it afterwards. "'There's where she sits, you see,' said Eugene, when they were standing under the bank, roared and riven at by the wind. "'There's the light of her fire.' "'I'll take a peep through the window,' said Mortimer. "'No, don't.' Eugene caught him by the arm. "'Best (laughs) not make a show of her. Come to our honest friend.' He led him to the post of watch, and they both dropped down, and crept under the lee of the boat. A better shelter than it had seemed before, being directly contrasted with the blowing wind and the bare night. "'Mr. Inspector at home?' whispered Eugene.
0: "'Here
1: I am, sir.' "'And our friend of the perspiring brow is at the far corner there. Good. Anything happened?' "'His daughter has been out, thinking she heard him calling. "'Unless it was a sign to keep him out of the way, it might have been.' "'It might have been Rule Britannia,' muttered Eugene, but it wasn't. "'Mortimer?' "'Here,' on the other side of Mr. Inspector. two burglaries now, and a forgery.' "'With this indication of his depressed state of mind, Eugene fell silent.' they were all silent for a long while as it got to be flood tide and the water came nearer to them noises on the river became more frequent and they listened more to the turning of steam paddles to the clinking of iron chain to the creaking of blocks to the measured working of oars to the occasional violent barking of some passing dog on shipboard who seemed to scent them but lying in their hiding place The night was not so dark but that, besides the lights at bows and mastheads gliding to and fro, they could discern some shadowy bulk attached, and now and then a ghostly lighter with a large dark sail, like a warning arm, would start up very near them, pass on, and vanish. At this time of their watch, the water close to them would be often agitated by some impulsion, given it from a distance. Often they believed this beat and plash to be the boat they lay in wait for— running in ashore, and again and again they would have started up, but for the immobility with which the informer, well used to the river, kept quiet in his place. The wind carried away the striking of the great multitude of city-church clocks, for those lay to leeward of them. But there were bells to windward that told them of its being one, two, three. Without that aid, they would have known how the night wore by the falling of the tide, recorded in the appearance of an ever-widening black, wet strip of shore, and the emergence of the paved causeway from the river, foot by foot. As the time so passed, this slinking business became a more and more precarious one. It would seem as if the man had had some intimation of what was in hand against him, or had taken fright. His movements might have been planned again for him in getting beyond their reach, twelve hours advantage the honest man who had expended the sweat of his brow became uneasy and began to complain with bitterness of the proneness of mankind to cheat him him invested with the dignity of labour their retreat was so chosen that while they could watch the river they could watch the house no one had passed in or out since the daughter thought she heard the father calling no one could pass in or out without being seen but it will be light at five, said Mr Inspector, and then we shall be seen. Look here, said Riderhood, what do you say to this? He may have been lurking in and out, and just holding his own betwixt two or three bridges for hours back. What do you make of that? said Mr Inspector, stoical, but contradictory. He may be doing so at this present time. "'What do you make of that?' said Mr. Inspector. "'My boat's among them boats here at the cause, eh? "'And what do you make of your boat?' said Mr. Inspector. "'What if I put off in her, and take a look around? I know his ways, and the likely nooks he favours. I know where he'd be at such a time of the tide, and where he'd be at such another time. Ain't I been his pardner? None of you need show.' "'None of you need stir, or I can shove her off without help. "'And as to me being seen, I'm about at all times.' "'You might have given a worse opinion,' said Mr. Inspector, after brief consideration. "'Try it.' "'Stop a bit. Let's work it out. "'If I want you, I'll drop round under the fellowships, and tip you a whistle.' If I might so far presume as to offer a suggestion to my honourable and gallant friend, whose knowledge of naval matters far be it from me to impeach—Eugene struck in with great deliberation—it would be that to tip a whistle is to advertise mystery and invite speculation. My honourable and gallant friend will, I trust, excuse me as an independent member for throwing out a remark which I feel to be due to this house and the country." "'Was that the Tether Governor, or Lawyer Lightwood?' asked Riderhood, for they spoke as they crouched or lay, without seeing one another's faces. "'In reply to the question put by my honourable and gallant friend,' said Eugene, who was lying on his back with his hat on his face, as an attitude highly expressive of watchfulness, "'I can have no hesitation in replying.' it not being inconsistent with the public service that uh, those accents were the accents of the t'other governor you've tolerable good eyes ain't you governor you've all tolerable good eyes ain't you demanded the informer all then if i row up under the fellowship and lay there no need to whistle you'll make out that there's a speck of something or another there and you'll know it's me and you'll come down that causey to me "'Understood all?' "'Understood all. "'Off she goes, then.' "'In a moment, with the wind cutting keenly at him sideways, "'he was staggering down to his boat. "'In a few moments he was clear and creeping up the river, "'under their own shore. "'Eugene had raised himself on his elbow "'to look into the darkness after him. "'I wish the boat of my honourable and gallant friend—' he murmured, lying down again and speaking into his hat, may be endowed with philanthropy enough to turn bottom upward and extinguish him. Mortimer? My honourable friend? Three burglaries, two forgeries, and a midnight assassination. Yet in spite of having those weights on his conscience, Eugene was somewhat enlivened by the late slight change in the circumstances of affairs. So were his two companions. Its being a change was everything. The suspense seemed to have taken a new lease, and to have begun afresh from a recent date. There was something additional to look for. They were all three more sharply on the alert, and less deadened by the miserable influences of the place and time. More than an hour had passed, and they were even dozing, when one of the three, each said it was he, and he had not dozed, made out riderhood in his boat at the spot agreed on. They sprang up, "'came out from their shelter, and went down to him. "'When he saw them coming, he dropped alongside the causeway, "'so that they, standing on the causeway, "'could speak with him in whispers, "'under the shadowy mass of the six jolly fellowship porters, "'fast asleep. "'Blessed, if I can make it out,' said he, staring at them. "'Make what out? Have you seen him?' "'No.' "'What have you seen?' asked Lightwood, "'for he was staring at them in the strangest way.' "'I've seen his boat.' "'Not empty?' "'Yes, empty. "'And what's more, adrift? "'And what's more, with one skull gone? "'And what's more, with tother skull jammed in the fells, "'and broke short off? "'And what's more, the boats drove tight by the tide, "'atwixt two tiers of barges? "'And what's more, he's in luck again by George, if he ain't?' End of Book One, Chapter Thirteen